continuing our series today through the Gospel of Matthew called The King. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that kind of there is a theological intent of the Gospel of Matthew that he is building a case. And so the title of the message is kind of a continuation of that. It is simply called The Case for the King. So can we pray and ask for the Lord's help together? Father, we need you. I pray in your mercy and in your grace, you would draw near to your people. Lord, your people need to hear your voice, not mine today. So hide me behind the cross and maybe even the manger of Jesus today. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Help. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start the sermon today in a little bit of an unusual way. We're going to play an exciting round of Name That Tune. That's right, folks, the game show that keeps on giving. So here we go. Let's see how you do on these. Tune number one. Oh, that's it. That's it. I heard it over here. That is Perry Mason. The Perry Mason's... It's very dramatic, folks. Very dramatic. It is the theme song to Perry Mason. How many of you have ever seen Perry Mason before? Okay, very good. All right. Next one. Next one might be a little more familiar. Here we go. Number two. Law and Order. Everybody gets that one. Okay. All right. Theme song number two is Law and Order. And theme song number three. Now, let me tell you, the 930 struggled with this one. I'm going to wager this audience does not. That's going to be my bet. Here we go. Song number three is... Yes, Better Call Saul. Very good. Yes, Better Call Saul. You're ungodly, Tiffany. Yeah, okay, good. All right, thank you. Yes. So we've got Perry Mason, we've got Law and Order, and we've got Better Call Saul. What is the theme? Yes, they're all lawyer shows, all of them. And, and here's the reality. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, you, you scan through the channels. I mean, almost every show is kind of like lawyer, has some sort of lawyer angle in it. Or you go to the bookstores. I mean, it's just racked on the shelves of bestsellers. You watch movies. There's hundreds of shows about the jurisprudence, the legal process in the United States of America. Why the fascination? Why are we so like, man, can we learn more about the court of law? Here's the answer. I think the reason that we have all of these shows like this is because the legal process is a sense of how we naturally approach problems. What do I mean by that? All of us have a little bit of an inner attorney, right? You're collecting evidence. You're building a case for how you believe, how you assemble information, and how ultimately you're going to behave. We all think that way. We gather evidence and we say, here's the conclusion that I'm going to draw as a result of the evidence. Well, why do I bring this up this morning? Here's why. Because in Matthew chapter 2, and really throughout his whole gospel, Matthew most definitely has his lawyer hat, or better yet, his lawyer robes on. 
because he is just throughout his gospel building a case that Jesus is the king. We saw that in Matthew chapter 1 where Jesus goes through this, or Matthew goes through this extended genealogy of Jesus. Why? Well, he's proving that he's the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. He's the king. Then you get to the end of chapter 1 and he talks about Jesus' virgin birth and the prophecy that came to Mary and all that surrounded that to again prove that, look, Jesus is the king. And then in Matthew chapter 2, he continues his case. And this time he just piles evidence after evidence after evidence, bringing them to the foreground to say, look, I want to prove to you beyond a shadow of the doubt that Jesus is the king. But here's the thing. Matthew is not just trying to convince us intellectually that Jesus is the king. He's not trying to say, hey, like Jesus is a king, like that's equivalent to like Dover is the capital of Delaware or two plus two equals seven. I know it's five, jeez. Tough crowd, tough crowd. Is this on? Right, okay, yeah. No, it's not just an intellectual fact to kind of store away like Jesus is the king. He wants us to see who Jesus is and as a result, respond to him in a certain way. He says, okay, Jesus is a king. Now what are you gonna do with that, basically? We see this in our Christmas carols, in fact. Look, look up on the screen here. Here's some familiar Christmas carols. What child is this? So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh, come peasant king to own him. Now look, he's called the king of king, salvation brings, let loving hearts, what? Basically worship him, right? Like he's the king, so worship him. Well, let me show you another one. Oh, come all ye faithful. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord or Christ the king. One more. Angel from the realms of glory. Come and, what's it say? Come and Christ the newborn. In other words, there's this idea that connected with his kingship is the proper response to his kingship is like, bow your knee, worship him. Jesus isn't just to kind of be intellectually a king. He's supposed to be, oh, he's the king. I must reverence him. I must bow down and worship before him. Which leads me to my point this morning. It's simply this. We must worship Christ the king. Now, I need you to put your theological thinking caps on here for a moment. Has it ever struck you as strange or maybe unusual that God in the scripture consistently calls us to worship him? Now stop and think about that for a moment. Why would God call us to worship him? Is he some sort of egomaniac in the sky? Like he's so full of himself and he's so like insecure that he needs like the praises and adoration of his people to somehow prop up his insecurity. Worship me, worship me, praise me, sing to me. I mean, read the Psalms for Pete's sakes. I mean, they're just loaded with these invocations, these invitations to sing praises to the Lord. And who's the author of the Psalms? It's the Lord. Is he just uber selfish? Like he's so narcissistic that he can't get his mind on anything else. So he's like, worship me, worship me, worship me, worship me, worship me. I'm so insecure. I need you to prop me up. Well, the answer I think obviously is no. But, but then why? Why? Why does God call us to consistently worship him? What is the reason before, for that? 
Here's the way I would say it. Simply this little phrase, and I'll unpack this. God calls us to worship him because exaltation is enjoyable. Exaltation is enjoyable. You know this instinctively. How many of you have ever been to the ocean before? Raise your hand. Been to the ocean? Okay, very good. When I go to the ocean, I experience two feelings simultaneously. They're related to one another. And, and typically I'll go to the ocean and I'll kind of wade out a little bit into the ocean. And so that like, you know, all I see this way, water. All I see this way, water. All I see in front of me is water. That's it. And in that moment, I kind of look around and you've experienced this before. If you've been to the ocean, you immediately feel small. Right? And look, most of us, most of us are going to the Atlantic, which is only half the size of the Pacific. So we're in the little brother of the oceans in one sense. And we go out there and feel utterly insignificant. Why would we go to a place that makes us feel insignificant? Why? Because something else happens too. Not only do we feel in that moment small and insignificant, we also feel happy, right? Here, here's what happens to me. I kind of wait out there in the water. I look left, all water. I look right, all water. I look out here, all water. And my mouth kind of starts to do this. And then I get a stupid crooked grin on my face. And I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. <laughs> because when you feel insignificant, you can also simultaneously feel joy. Here's the reason. We were fashioned for fascination. God made you to find significance in something larger than yourself. And the ocean is just a, a parable of that. You were not made to ultimately be fascinated by the ocean or by the mountains, but rather you were made to be fascinated by the maker of the ocean and the mountains. And so God calls you, worship me, praise me, adore me, give me honor, give me glory, give me praise, because he loves us. He wants you to have joy. And he knows as long as you're doing your naval inspection, you're gazing inward to find significance, you're gazing inward to find joy, you are chasing a fool's errand. What does Solomon say? It's a chasing of the wind. You won't ever find joy or happiness in here. You will only find joy and happiness up there. So we need to get our eyes off of things that won't bring us joy. So that's why the passage says, worship the king. See him for who he is and respond to him appropriately. And there and only there will your heart find the joy so which you are desperately looking. Listen, let me put my pastoral hat on right now. Some of y'all are bored. Your whole life is boring. 
And it's because you're worshiping the wrong things. Because this king I read about in my Bible is not boring. You're made for him. So stop fooling around with trying to find joy in things that will only bring you emptiness. Find joy in the one true king. And I don't just mean sex and drug and alcohol. I mean your family. The enemy of the best is sometimes the good. And as long as you got your eyes set on the near horizon, you're missing the constellations. You are made for something more, brothers and sisters. You are made for God, and you will only find joy and rest and satisfaction and delight when you worship the King. C.S. Lewis very astutely put it this way. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So here's my hope. Here's my burden this morning. That all of us, every single person in this room, would capture a little bit more of a sense of wonder. You would be freshly amazed at Jesus. That you would walk out of here being a little bit more in awe of the King. And that we wouldn't go through life boring, basic, but really have hearts inflamed by the one for whom we were made, the King. So Matthew begins to build his case here. So I want to give you several pieces of evidence that Jesus is King. So here's Matthew, the attorney, building his case. Exhibit A. His first piece of evidence is the quest of the Magi. Look at verse number one of the text. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So who are these guys and why are they included in this story of Jesus? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole ton about them, frankly. But the historical data surrounding the ancient literature does give us enough information that we can kind of piece together a picture of who the Magi or the wise men were and why they're in this story. So first question is this, who were the Magi? Well, the Bible tells us they were from the East. That's probably Babylon or Persia. And Magi were a class of scholars. They were experts in things like astronomy and math and science and all of these things. They were also religious figures. Uh, they, they were often known for their religious beliefs, though some of them were not always orthodox. We would consider them a cult many times. So these are who the Magi were. When we read about the Magi in the book of Daniel, where he, Daniel the prophet, earns like a great standing in the Magi's sight, by interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and then you would, you would understand this because he saved all their lives. So for whatever reason, the Magi probably, maybe they got connected with the Old Testament through Daniel. We don't know exactly, but somehow, some way, they got to know that Jesus or the king would be coming and that his coming would be accompanied by a star. We'll say more about that in a minute. 
Magi were the advisors to royalty. The medial Persian kings, Magi would be in their court, like in the book of Daniel. So much so that these guys were often charged with the coronation or the recognition of new kings, and they became known as the king makers. So here, the Magi, this, this class of scholar, dignitary, royal advisors show up in the story. Well, what's their significance? Look at verse number two. The passage tells us exactly why they came. Look at what it says. Where is he, this is the Magi speaking, who has been born king of the Jews, for he saw his star as it's rising and have come to, what's it say? Worship him. So roughly two years had passed since Jesus had been born. And the wise men came on the scene. And when they finally came to where Jesus did, was, they did exactly what they said they would do. Look at verse 11 of Matthew chapter 2. Entering the house, they're no longer in the stable or the manger. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they... Okay, now, you, you got to get this scene a little bit here. So here are these apparently wealthy, royal dignitaries. They, they travel hundreds of miles to this out-of-the-way place, this little shepherd's village, as it were, Bethlehem. And they come to the house where they find a toddler who has been born under questionable circumstances to probably a teenage mother and a middle-class carpenter and they walk into the room and they fall down on their face and they, that's weird. When I find toddlers, I don't do, oh, let me just, you know, this is the last thing on my mind when I see toddlers. So what's going on here? Well, Matthew's making a point here. He's like, this is outlandish. This is crazy. These magi show up and they have significance in the story because they are acknowledging and recognizing who Jesus is. And they don't only worship him, they bring him gifts, right? And the gifts are what? What are they? Remember them? Gold, frankincense, and... And even their gifts seem to have some sort of divine prescience about them. You know, when you read through the Old Testament particularly, you find that gold is often associated with royalty. Frankincense, when you read through the Old Testament, it was an incense that was used in worship. And myrrh was a costly perfume that was often used in burial, the Lord's own, as it were. So even their gifts, in one sense, are pointing to the identity of who Jesus was. Or if I could put it in a rather pithy way for those of you English nerds out there, the presence of the wise men declared the presence of the king. When they brought these gifts, they were declaring the uniqueness of the child that they were worshiping. The entire account of the wise men, their journey and their response to Jesus is a powerful piece of evidence that Jesus is a king like no other. It's as if Matthew is saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I present to you exhibit A. But he's not done. He's still building his case. So exhibit B, his second piece of evidence, is the appearance of the star. As we've already alluded to, the wise men were guided not by Google Maps or by Siri. 
but by an unusual star. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 2. For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Unlike some of the other messianic prophecies, like the virgin birth or like the place of Jesus' birth, there is no like explicit passage in the Old Testament that says when the Messiah will come, there will be a star accompanying him. There's nowhere that it says that. However, there are a couple of powerful allusions in the Old Testament to a star and its association with a coming king. And I think the wise men knew about this. It's possible that the wise men knew to go on their journey because God appeared to them in dream. That's possible. It's possible that they had some sort of interaction with Daniel or someone else, some prophet of the Old Testament who gave them this piece of information that's not recorded in Scripture. That's possible. But I do think that they, at least at some degree, were familiar with the Old Testament and the allusions to the star and the king because of what they say when they arrive. Look at Numbers chapter 24, verse number 17. Here's the allusion. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will rise from Israel. So here's this prophecy that a, a star will come from Jacob, an Israelite, a Jewish person, and a scepter, a king, will arise in Israel. And so what is the question the wise men ask? Where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. For we have seen his star. So I think they're reading the Old Testament. That's what I think is going on. They, they have this idea that, man, numbers is somehow foreshadowing that the star will rise and a king will come. But here's the thing. In numbers, it tells us more about this king. And it is pretty impressive. Look at what it says. Numbers chapter 24, verse number 17. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel, and he will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. Edom will become a possession. Seir will become a possession of its enemies. But Israel will be triumphant. One who comes from Jacob will rule, and he will destroy the city of survivors. Yikes. This guy's kicking butt and taking names. He's not just like a beloved political figure like Churchill or Lincoln. This dude is bad. And he is king of everyone and everywhere. But this is not the only picture we get of the star king. Look again at the wise men's choice of words. Look at what it says again. Verse number two. For we saw his star at its, what's it say? Okay, that's important. Because again, a few verses later in verse number nine, they say the same thing. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen at its interesting word choice. Why do you talk about not just seeing the star, but seeing the star at its rising? I think again, it's an allusion to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 60, verse number one. Look at the screen. It says this first word says, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will upon you and his glory will be seen on you and the nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your sound familiar the simple idea is this 
the appearance of the star announced the arrival of the king. When the star came, they were like, there he is. This is this dude, this bad king that the Bible talks about, this guy that is all powerful and he will rule over all the world. This is the king that not just the Jews have been waiting for, this is the king humanity has been hoping for. He is the king. And Matthew again says, ladies and gentlemen, exhibit B. Another piece of evidence here in Matthew chapter 2, exhibit C, the fulfillment of prophecy. When the Magi posed the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They asked Herod. Now, Herod was not a Jew himself. He was not an ethnic Jew, but he styled himself the king of the Jews because he was kind of king of Israel. And so when the wise men came and were like, hey, we're looking for the real king, this was, this was not the most savvy move on their part. Because Herod was threatened with it. The Bible says that he was shaken, and the Bible also says all Jerusalem was shaken with him. And for good reason, because this dude was crazy. I mean... If you looked up in the dictionary and saw a photo of the word unstable, next to it would be Herod. If there were dictionaries and photos back then. There weren't, so you can't find it. This guy is nuts. He kills his wife. He kills his son. He kills all the babies in Bethlehem. Why? Because he's just trying to secure the throne. But just because he's ruthless and cruel doesn't mean he's not smart. So the wise men ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So he knows where to get those answers. So he assembles all the scholars, all the biblical scholars, and he asks them the question, hey, where is this king that y'all been waiting for? Where is he supposed to be born? Let me know. I want to go worship him. Liar. So they come together and they quote for him from the book of Micah, verse number 2, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 6. And you, Bethlehem. In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Very simply, the king will be born in Bethlehem. Here's a reality. How many of you determined where you wanted to be born? Raise your hand. How many of you determined what family you wanted to be born into? Raise your hand. That's an impossibility. And yet, here, 700 years after Micah makes this prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Jesus is born where? You can't contrive that. You can't manipulate that. No baby can control where they'd be born to tell this narrative, this false narrative about who they are. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Jesus was the king. He was the one who humanity had been hoping for, who the wise men recognized, who the star announced, and who prophecy had pointed to. But this is not an isolated instance. Jesus just didn't fulfill the prophecy of being born in Bethlehem. Jesus filled throughout his life dozens of prophecies about the coming Messiah. The prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be a descendant of Jesse. To whom the nations would look, Isaiah 11, verse number 10. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. And guess who is a descendant of Jesse? His name is the prophet Hosea 
predicted that God would call his son out of Egypt. And after Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the wise men kind of let them know what's going on. God sends a dream to Joseph. Joseph relocates his family to Egypt and then eventually comes back to the promised land. It says in Matthew chapter 2, verse number 15, out of Egypt I have called my son. So Jesus went from Bethlehem to Egypt and came back to Israel. Is that coincidence? Or you go ahead and you look in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, passage we read a little bit earlier, and it says that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David, that his dominion will be vast, his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And guess just who happens to be the descendant of David and the heir to the throne? His name is... Wait, there's one more? Hundreds of years before this baby is born, God predicts to the prophet Isaiah that he would be born in the most unusual way. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel, God with us, which, of course, no one but Jesus was born in this way. You get the picture. With all of these prophecies just piling up, just one right after another, and pointing to the work of Christ, he is who he says he is, you are left with only two options, friends. Jesus is either a con man, the greatest of all time, by the way. He has duped millions, if not billions, of people. He is either a con man or he's the Christ. That's it. Those are your options. He either has fooled all of us or he is exactly who he says he is. And the fact of the matter is, is this guy don't behave like a con man. I think the only logical conclusion is that Jesus is the king. He's the king. Look, the Bible doesn't call us to check our brains at the door. We are called to have faith in what the word of God says, but it's not an unreasonable faith. God lays out evidences, exhibits, pieces of evidence to show us that Jesus is exactly who he says he was. And then there's one more piece of evidence that Matthew lays out for us, but it's not here in Matthew chapter two. It's found at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and it is probably the most compelling piece of evidence at all. Exhibit D, the death of Jesus. Though it may seem counterintuitive, Jesus proved that he was a king by dying. In a sense, folks, it's very true to say that Jesus' crucifixion was his coronation. Just listen to the words of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. And they stripped him and they dressed him in a scarlet robe. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. 
And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of a robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And look at what it says. And above his head, they put a charge against him in writing. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The soldiers' acts of mockery were actually an affirmation of reality. They meant to insult Jesus by those words, but in one sense, they were just affirming who he was. Hail the King of the Jews! God even took the cruelty of man, the most vile act in human history, to loud and clear say, you want to see the king? This is the king. He is our king. And friends, what is more kingly than a king who sacrifices himself to protect his people? What is more kingly than a a king who takes the blow to rescue his people? What is more kingly than a king who fights for his people's freedom? In his death, Jesus declared more loudly than anywhere else, I am the king. And whether you recognize it or not, it is bedrock objective reality. Christ is king. Church, here's a question I have for you. Are you not amazed by him? This is the one for whom we were made. We are made to, like the wise men, fall down at our face and worship him. Don't you have a sense of awe at this king? that he would come and live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died so that we could be brought into his kingdom. We could rule and reign with him forever. He is our king. And the only appropriate response is to worship, to bow our knee. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord, Christ the King. He is who you are made for. I want to ask us to respond to that right now as Jason continues to play. Maybe you're at a place and you're saying, Ryan, you know what? I see Jesus as King. But if I'm really honest, I've I've lost a sense of wonder. I'm a little bored. Kind of go through my life and this idea of falling down and worshiping at Jesus. I know intellectually that's the right thing, but man, it's not in my heart. It's not in my gut. And I need to see Jesus as amazing. I need to get my eyes off of down here and get them up here. I want to invite you to do something right now. In just one moment, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand real quick, and I'm going to ask the church to pray for you. So you're going to raise your hand and say, I I need a renewed sense of wonder. And then folks around you are just going to pray for you, pray that over you. Pray that God would do a work in your heart. 
So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Then I'm going to ask people to pray for you. That's what we're going to do right now. Hey, no shame in that. Somebody prayed for me. They, they said, Ryan, how are you doing? And I was tempted to just say uh, in between the services today, I was tempted to say, oh, good. And I'm like, I'm not really good. Like I'm struggling with some stuff. And so I shared what I was struggling with. And, and she said, can I pray for you? And I said, yes. And I was like, mm, that was good. <laughs> Sometimes we're just too proud to receive. And I want to encourage you to let the body of Christ be the body of Christ this morning. We're supposed to minister to one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. I say this all the time at Gospel Hope. Who are your ministers here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, Rod and I. I get it. Like, don't be smart, Alecky. Yeah, we're the pastors. But who are our ministers here? All y'all. Because we're all made to love and serve one another. We all have gifts, and God calls us to minister to one another. So whether you have trusted in Jesus, whether you've not trusted in Jesus, and you're saying, man, I just need a renewed sense of wonder, or I need a sense of wonder for the first time, I want to encourage you to respond and let the people of God pray over you. Amen? Father, we just pause right now and we say, we need you. You're the king, we're not. And Lord, forgive us for losing our sense of awe at the amazing work of the Savior. I pray right now we would respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you just want some folks to pray with you, you need a renewed sense of wonder or awe, just put your hand up and then church move. Put your hand up and then church move. Great, great, go ahead. Find folks with their hand up. You gotta put your head on the swivel here. Raise your hand or find folks with their hand up and pray over them. Great. Just take a moment, pray over people. There's a couple more here. Great. Father, we come and we worship you as the king. Lord, I pray that we would all have a fresh sense of wonder, of awe, of amazement at who you are. We were made to be fascinated by you. Turn our eyes to the king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
And you may, might say, man, I've never been at a church where they like pray like that. That's kind of weird. Yep, it is, it is. I acknowledge it. But I also think it's healthy. We want to be a church that prays with and for one another. And if you don't know the Lord, man, this is a great place for you to learn how to pray with and for one another. You know, one of the greatest human fears is this, to be alone. And we want to loud and clear say, you are not alone. God has come to earth and he has given us his people to be his hands and feet. So that's why we do that, church. So let's be active in seeking the Lord. Now, hey, there's only one appropriate response after seeing who Jesus is. It is to worship his name. So don't you dare be passive right now. You get up on your feet and let's worship the King of kings and exalt his name, which is worthy of the glory. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.